This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Father Alan Fitzgerald, director of the Augustinian Institute. We uh, every year have a great pleasure of welcoming, every semester, welcoming a St. Augustine Fellow to campus and uh, getting all the benefit of the expertise from other places. Dr. Ryan Mass is from um, Montana, Helena, Montana, at Carroll uh, College. He's been with us the whole semester working on the influence of Augustine, especially in the ninth century. But today's a little bit different. Um, it'll take us down a, a, a patristic path. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Brian. Um, he's uh, Professor of History of Christianity, distinguished faculty scholar in the year 213 at that college. Has a three-year special appointment for the Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen Professor of Peace and Justice um, chair. And his background is he has doctorates from living in Belgium in uh, social ethics and from St. Louis University in early Christian studies. Uh, he's already got four books out there, two that he wrote himself and two that he edited with other people's works. So Catholic patristic social thought and Catholic social thought, or patristic sources in Catholic social teaching. So that kind of sets him up for giving the lecture today of being able to walk us into the way they dealt with wealth in antiquity hopes that it will be a, not only a, an interesting conversation, but a chance to reflect on things as they are today. Um, I don't like long introductions. And I hope you're OK with my leaving it there. Uh, Brian is a um, wonderful scholar who's come here, lived just off campus in a house provided by the university with his wife and four children. Um, so he's uh, doing like all of us are doing, somehow balancing many things in the process of doing lots of good research. Brian, would you like to begin? Sure. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming uh, out here on Tuesday uh, afternoon. I appreciate it. How many people here have been to Montana? Anybody here been to Montana? Where did you go in Montana? And went to Yellowstone. Okay, very nice. Yep. So the uh, Yellowstone, just a couple hours drive from my house. Uh, have you ever been to Glacier National Park? Uh, well, that's up in the northwest corner, so a little bit further drive. So, well, Helena, Montana, where I normally live, is halfway between Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks. If you ever go out there to visit those parks, uh, you would pass through Helena to get from one to the other. It's also the capital, of course, of, uh, of Montana. <coughs> but it's a delight to be out here. Um, I thought coming out here I would avoid like the really nasty winter weather that we get typically in Helena. It's actually been horrible here <laughs> and uh, back in uh, Montana surprisingly enough uh, when the average temperature over the course of the winter has been 45 degrees. So very odd, uh, not normal for that, uh, that part of the country. But uh, in any case um, I've been, I'm delighted to be here uh, not for the weather but for other reasons. Um, let me, I'd like to ask a question to kind of get things started here. Um, how many of you are from 
homes, or you're certainly aware of this uh, phenomenon at people's homes, where you have to do like regular lawn care. Anybody have to like mow the grass, rake leaves, you know, and these types of things? Yeah, okay, so just about everybody here in the room, right? Or you can certainly, um, uh, you've seen pictures of this, or you've, um, you can imagine it. Well, you know, we're entering the spring season here. I guess it's fighting to get here. It'll be pretty cold here on Saturday. But uh, after Saturday, it looks to be really nice weather here through next week. And so pretty soon, people are going to start dragging out, right, their lawn mowers and their leaf blowers and their weed whackers and the hedge trimmers and brooms and dustpans, right? They're going to be taking all this stuff out so they can engage in that American ritual of lawn care, right? How many of you have done that sort of thing, right, at home? Okay. Anybody ever have a summer job where you've, like, mowed other people's lawns? Okay, a number of people have done that, too. I've done that as well, right? And uh, it's uh, pretty crazy. Well, have you ever thought, just thinking about, like, an individual home, right, maybe where your parents live, right, the home you grew up in and having to care for the lawn there, have you ever thought that it's kind of strange that once a week, right, you take all of those tools out to engage in this, as I say, ritual of lawn care, right? So there's like, there's 168 hours in a week, and for one or two of them, right, we take all those tools out, use them, and then put them back. So for 166 of the 168 hours in a week, the things just sit there taking up space, right? So I've thought on more than one occasion, why don't my neighbors and I get together, right? Maybe you could imagine doing this with some of the neighbors where you're, uh, where you're from, right? And let's all agree to buy one lawnmower, one hedge trimmer, one leaf blower, one all of, the, of all of those tools, right? And then we can store them in like a common shed, Right? And then instead of the tools being used just once a week, right, for like one hour of the entire week, that they get used multiple times, multiple hours, and they, the, the, the purpose for which they were built to be used to care for a lawn actually finds multiple opportunities, right? Not just on my lawn, they can be used on multiple people's lawn. Have you ever thought about this problem? You go out on Saturdays and you're taking out the lawnmower and you see the neighbors are doing it, the next neighbors down are doing it. And you ever, haven't you ever wondered that? I've thought of this number of times. I actually thought of it to the point where I wrote an article for our local Helena paper about this. And I wrote an article uh, asking that my neighbors would consider jointly buying all these tools with me. Well, my neighbor across the street had just bought a riding lawnmower and I really wanted to use that. So I was putting this out there through the, the local paper and to see what my neighbors would think about me and about this proposal I have that we sort of jointly buy all these tools, right? Um, needless to say, my neighbors did not find it very amusing. Uh, they were not interested at all in sharing their riding lawnmowers or their hedge trimmers and leaf blowers and all that. And so I was left to continue to own and maintain all of these things myself. And it just seems so crazy, right? Because they just take up space in the garage or in a storage shed for, as I say, 166 out of 168 hours in a week. Have any of you brought a car here to campus? Okay, a few people have a car. Or Have you ever borrowed a friend's car that has a, they have one on campus? 
few more hands, right? I mean, you can imagine, right? Somebody has a car here on campus. They park it in a parking lot. And what does it do? It sits there for more hours of the day than it's being used, right? Wouldn't it be great if when they weren't using it, they just like hung the keys in, a, in, a, in, in an open space and anybody who needs the car could just go up and get the keys and borrow the car? Wouldn't that be great? Would you think so? No? You wouldn't do that with your car? Why not? Liability, yeah. Yeah, you're concerned somebody might crash it or something, right? Yeah, but I mean, how often do you drive a car and crash it? It's very rare, right? I mean, the chances of it happening are pretty low, right? Aren't you willing to take the risk for the benefit of sharing with your dorm mates or apartment mates? Aren't you willing? To, you're not willing to do that? No? You like it too much? But it just sits there. Was it built to sit in a parking lot? Yeah, but you wouldn't do it with the car, right? No? Why, but why not? I mean, what if, if I needed a car, right? Wouldn't you be willing to loan it to me? You're not using it. It's just sitting there. No, you're not too interested in that. That's it's too much, right? Okay, okay. Well, this, the, the, the car and the, the, the lawn care items are kind of similar examples. Um, of something I'd like to talk about here. Because what I'm really talking about is this, right? When do we have enough private property, okay? When do we have enough private property? And really, you go deeper than that, you say, does our use or non-use of the property have any bearing on whether or not we should really say it's ours, okay? So how much property is enough? And does our use or non-use of the property have any bearing on whether we can say it's really ours? Now, these types of questions animated Christians since the earliest days. And in this presentation today, I want to show you how Christianity made the transition from encouraging its members to renounce wealth, to renounce all these possessions, right, to becoming more accepting of it. Because Christianity did make a transition here on this issue of private property. But I also want to show you that Christianity has, at the same time, been fairly clear that there is a line, right? There is a line between rightful ownership and thievery that people with excess goods can too easily cross. If you will, there's a tipping point when one's wealth can become sufficiently large that you actually move from being a righteous rich, a righteous, wealthy person to an unrighteous, rich, or wealthy person. And when people hoard their superfluous private property, they do become thieves. So in order to understand why Christianity was interested in this question of private property in the first place, uh, it would be helpful to know uh, that Roman society was also interested in these questions at the same time. Okay. Now, I don't have time to go through a litany of these examples, but I just want to tell you about two of them. The first is um, a text uh, written by a guy named Xenophon called The Education of Cyrus. Now, it's a provocative but ahistorical account of the life of this Persian ruler, Cyrus, who had lived 
a couple centuries before the time of Xenophon himself. And in book one of this text, the young Cyrus is offered an opportunity to live with his grandfather in Medea. And when prompted by his mother to say, hey, why don't you come back home to Persia? You don't need to live with grandpa anymore, right? Um, Cyrus replies that he has already learned everything there is to know in Persia, but living with his grandfather in Medea will teach him some new things. Okay, and then he relates an account that I have here on the screen um, of something that he learned while living in Persia about justice. And he says that in one episode of his schooling, there were two boys of differing heights that had missized coats. Okay, so th there was a tall boy and a shorter boy. The tall boy had a coat that was too small, and the shorter boy had a coat that was too big. So Cyrus just orders that the two switch coats. And he thought this would solve the problem, right? And this was a more just way to live, that people would own things that they could actually use and not continue to hold on to things that were useless to them, right? Well, for this decision, Cyrus was punished by his teachers. He was ordered to have the boys switch the coats back because, as he was told by his teacher, to keep the application of justice simple and fair, ownership is the more just means of deciding who should possess what. So let's look at this text here on the screen. There were two boys, a big boy and a little boy, and the big boy's coat was small, and the small boy's coat was huge. So the big boy stripped the little boy and gave him his own small coat while he put on the big one himself. Now in giving judgment, I decided that it was better for both parties that each should have the coat that fitted him best but I never got any further in my sentence because the master thrashed me here and said that the verdict would have been excellent if I had been appointed to say what fitted and what did not. But I had been called in to decide to whom the coat belonged, and the point to consider was who had a right to it. Okay, so from this experience, Cyrus had learned, and Roman law later followed, that's what's key here, that laws ought to protect the rights of people to own things for which they had no particular use. So you with your car sitting in the parking lot that you will not loan to me, right? You have the, the law is, should be there to protect your right to leave the car there and not loan it to me, right? Even though I have a, a more pressing need for it than you might at a given time, right? Cyrus learned that lesson, right? So if you, put, if you will put another way, justice means protecting the rights of people not to do what is otherwise in their best interest. A second example from Aristotle. Now here he provides uh, a discussion of private property in his politics, book two. Uh, here Aristotle argues there is a distinction between the care of possessions and the use of them. And I turn to this quote here. Community of property therefore involves strife and discontent. And the present system, if further improved by good morals and by the regulation of correct legislation, would be greatly superior. For it will possess the merit of both systems, by which I mean the advantage of property being common, isn't that interesting, right? And the advantage of its being private. For property ought to be common in a sense, but private speaking, absolutely. For the superintendence of properties being divided among the owners will not cause these mutual complaints and will improve the more, because each will apply himself to it as to private business of his own. While on the other hand, virtue will be exercised to make, f 
friends' goods, common goods, as the proverb goes, for the purpose of use. Okay? So what is he saying here? Care of possessions ought to be private, but the use of possessions ought to be common. So you think about that lawnmower example, or even the car example. Right? It's good that that car is privately owned, that one person says it's their car, because they're going to change the oil, they're going to maintain the vehicle, right? They're going to get it washed and waxed on an occasional basis, right? So it looks nice, right? They're going to take care of it. But it's, uh, what he's saying is that one person owns it will ensure that, the, prod, that the, uh, the piece of property is cared for, but it should be made available for common use because the object is not always going to be used by the owner of it. And other people might, at a given time, have a greater need for it. And so this distinction between care and use, which is rem reminiscent of ownership and use, like Cyrus had encountered a moment ago, right, preserves a sense of dignity for each property owner, insofar as both pleasure is derived from calling something one's own, like your car example, right? You said you'd, you like that car, you don't want to give it up to other people, right? There's a certain amount of pleasure in having something that's your own, but also greed is restrained. If she has a car, right, she's not necessarily wanting my car. I have a Honda Odyssey. Probably none of you want to get a minivan, right? I didn't even want a minivan, right? But when you have a certain number of kids, at some point, those are the only kind of vehicles available. Anyway, what is more, Aristotle asserts that the distinction between care and use instills two important virtues, as you can see towards the bottom of this text here, right? Moderation and liberality, right? For moderation, this distinction uh, between care and use, right, preserves an awareness that some goods are not properly shareable. And he's thinking here about Plato's Republic, where he talks about wives potentially being shareable among the guardians of a city. Right? With respect to liberality, this care and use distinction recognizes that sharing is only possible when goods are held privately. Yet despite this explanation, Aristotle concludes such a life of private ownership and common use will be altogether impossible. It goes just beyond this quote here where he says, um, depravity in humans will prevent the happy sharing of the use of goods. So at least for Aristotle, the construction of a city should not depend on shared use of property as the basis for any sort of common good. Okay, so I've reviewed Xenophon's and Aristotle's texts here because their focus on use versus ownership was quite a prominent feature of not only Roman legal discourse about private property in the centuries that followed, but it also influenced Christian discourse about those things too. Could it be that private property is no longer private once one ceases to have a use for it? To Roman law, the answer was no. Despite their general unease, as you can see in Xenophon and Aristotle's text, despite sort of the general unease they both felt about that. They just felt society was better off if people just, if you own the property, then it's yours, and no one else can use it if you don't want them to, right? They didn't like that, but they realized that was the best course of action to maintain order in society. The early Christians, however, were willing to consider some alternatives. So let's turn to some early Christian literature on private property. One of the central texts in the debate comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 21, and it's parallel passage in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. I thought this was kind of funny there. Right? They came up with that. 
Now, you may know this text, right? Jesus is confronted by a young man, right? He was wearing blue at the time, I guess. That's why the Lego guy is made that way, right? And uh, he came up to Jesus and he asked him, you know, what must I do to be saved or to inherit eternal life, depending upon the, the translation there. And, um, and Jesus says to him, well, you know, you need to follow the law and the teachings of the prophets. And the guy says, I've kept all those from my youth, right? And then Jesus tells him, as you see in that lower right picture, but you lack one thing. You need to go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. Give the proceeds to the poor. So this suggests Jesus called for a lifestyle of renunciation. Okay? Followers of Jesus are to renounce their wealth and to give it away, if necessary, to satisfy the needs of poor people. You may be equally familiar with a story recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and to 45, in which the earliest Christian community is described as one in which its members sold their possessions and distributed them to poor members of the community, right? It says here on the screen, um, they, that is the early Christian community there, were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Right? You may also be familiar with Paul's encouragement to the wealthier Christians in Greece and to the churches in Asia Minor that he had founded that they need to share their excess wealth with the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He seemed to have taken up a collection on at least one occasion, maybe two, for those poor Christians, right? You also may know the passage in James, chapter 2, verse 3, right, in which James warns his readers against showing special deference to wealthy people when they come into the church, right? You don't offer them a better seat, right? All the seats are common, right? <clears throat> so before God, it seems, wealth curries no favor other than what it may gain for one by being compassionate towards poor persons. Even in the century after the time of Jesus, Christians were still teaching that renouncing wealth was the preferred path of life. An early second century text, the Epistle of Barnabas, in section 19 of that text, exhorts its readers, quote, treat as common all things with your neighbor, and do not say things are one's own. For if you are sharers in incorruptible things, how much more ought you to be sharers in corruptible things? We find the same point made in the Didache, a late first or early second century document. Arguably, for the writers of Barnabas and the Didache text, right, like the passage in uh, Mark's Gospel and in uh, Acts, right, the dream of a community that, con that continued to share its goods with those who had needs had not died. Right? They were hoping that that was still the case, even a century on. So in sum, at this point, right, the earliest documents of Christianity on the subject of private property suggest there is a preference for living more simply than we otherwise are inclined to do. They suggest that those with too much private property have unwittingly allowed that property to hinder their relationship with God. However, that renunciation view would not last long. Already in the second century, there are passages in the writings of at least two uh, authors. One, a text by Irenaeus against heresies, 
and another text we call the Shepherd of Hermas. They signal an interest already by the mid to late second century of thinking differently about private property. Renunciation of wealth may not be the preferred course. But it's really with the writings of a leader of the Christian community in Alexandria in Egypt that a shift from renunciation to what we will later call detachment from wealth takes its most formidable turn. Clement of Alexandria, a bishop in that city during the third century, wrote a sermon titled, Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved? Now the sermon is about, about Mark 10, verse 21, that passage I had on the screen a moment ago, right? Where Jesus tells that rich young man that he must go sell all that he possesses and give the proceeds to the poor, okay? Um, Clement asks this question in a sermon. He reads that text and he asks this question. How can we follow Mark 10, verse 21, literally, if Jesus tells us in another text, Matthew chapter 25, that we are obliged to, you may know that text, to feed the hungry, right? Clothe the naked, house the homeless, right? And visit those who are in prison. So if you interpret scripture literally, right, according to Clement, you would be following Mark 10 or Mark 25, but you would not be able to follow both. That is to say, if you do what Jesus says in Mark 10, literally, to go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor, right, then you will have nothing left. And when Jesus tells you to care for those who have needs, you will have nothing to do, nothing, no resources with which to care for those people who have needs. So you would be violating Jesus' teaching in Matthew, or just the reverse. So to Clement, he thought there must be a middle ground, something between Mark 10 and Matthew 25, that allows you to live out both commands. Either sell everything, or have stuff so you can give it to people as you meet them that have needs. Right? And what he comes up with will become the main teaching of Christianity on private property for nearly the next 15 centuries. This is a short excerpt. This is actually a long sermon, but here's a short little excerpt from uh, the middle of it. How could one give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked and shelter the houseless, if each man first divested himself of all wealth? Riches then, which benefit also our neighbors, are not to be thrown away, for they are possessions, inasmuch as they are possessed, and goods, inasmuch as they are useful, and look at this, provided by God, right, for the use of human persons. And they lie to our hand and are put under our power as material and instruments which are for good use, right, to those who know the instrument. If you use it skillfully, it is skillful. If you are deficient in skill, it is affected by your want of skill. But notice this last phrase, right, these, pro these objects themselves being itself destitute of blame. So Clement argues a person may freely possess what he or she needs, or you can possess what's useful to you, but all that is superfluous right, must be given to the poor. So a sufficient level of property is that which allows one to be hospitable. And beyond that, everything else is superfluous. Now actually, you, uh, you probably find this interesting. Later in the text, Clement will go on to list items that he's seen in people's homes and in people's possession 
that he thinks are beyond what is needed or useful. He lists, for example, makeup, jewelry, silver dishware, right, and any of the decorous goods that you find in people's homes, right? Some of you may uh, come from homes where you have this uh, issue too. When my wife and I got married, right, a number of years back, we got two sets of dishes as like wedding presents, right? We got everyday dishes and we got this like formal china dishes. Anybody have those in your home, right? You have everyday dishes, maybe your parents have china as well, right? So these like formal dishes and my wife and we have a whole cab, it fills up a whole cabinet of all of these fancy china dishes that we drag out of the cabinet like twice a year, right? Three times a year, maybe at most, right? And, and that's what Clement's talking about. Why do you have that? There's people with no dishes. Why don't you give your extra set of dishes away, right? I mean, because it's superfluous to you. Right? But that, that he thinks makeup and jewelry and other things are also superfluous probably would rub some people the wrong way. In any case, one of Clement's early successors as bishop in Alexandria was a guy named Peter, so Peter of Alexandria, and he took Clement's argument one step further. And he said in his sermon on riches uh, that God makes a separation. See, Clement didn't say this, but, but Peter will say this. God makes a separation between the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich, or what he calls the merciless rich person. The righteous rich person gives little thought to his wealth and shares it liberally with the poor. The merciless, unrighteous rich person is consumed with the thoughts of wealth and despises the needs of the poor. So Peter's solution to the problem of too much wealth is to encourage the rich to give alms, right? Just give it away. Peter encourages, in fact, the merciless rich person to give thought to the afterlife and to the negative consequences, a.k.a. eternal damnation, torment, whatever, right, that are due to come for having dismissed the plight of the poor. Even further, Peter reminds the merciless rich person that no one can know the hour of their death. It's far better to give alms now while you can still save your soul than to delay even one day. And then Peter goes on to list the excuses he's heard rich people say that cause them not to want to give their wealth away, right? He says people give the excuse of, oh, I have an upcoming tax bill. I've got to save for that. Or I have to save for the needs of my children, their, their future education expenses. He even mentions that, right? Talk about a guy who lived, you know, 17 centuries ago. He's talking about saving for their children's future tuition needs, right? And he says that's all useless talk, right? Why? Because he says, if you are concerned for these things, you are concerned for the things of the earth and not for heavenly things. To Peter's mind, the distribution of alms to the poor is the starting point for those with relatively greater financial means who wish to ensure their wealth is not a hindrance to their relationship with God. Okay? Now, by the mid-fourth century, this position, what we call detachment from wealth, is pretty well set. One of the most prominent uh, Greek homilists of that period was Basil of Caesarea. In a treatise on the Christian life, his shorter rules, question number 92, Basil affirmed that property cannot in itself be bad, lest it be not a creation of God, which you see right out of Clement here. Right? Detachment from this, if you will, morally neutral property is the subject of at least three of his sermons. 
in homily 7, Basil builds an argument for detachment from the premise that property is by definition temporary, right? And we are temporary on this earth, so we don't enjoy it for very long, right? In homily 8, Basil suggested what is often enough is far less than most people presume, right? So you think you need a whole list of things, say, for your dorm room or apartment or whatever, right? And Basil and Clement and others would come to say, do you really need all of these things or are they merely wants, right? And how honest with yourself are you really being? Um, finally, in his homily 21, Basil likened the love for possessions to drunkenness and to gluttony. When a drunk person sobers or when a gluttonous person's belly no longer distends, right? Sanity finally returns to your mind. And perhaps you've had one of these experiences where you really begin to like loathe yourself for having engaged in the activities that you did, say, the night before, right? Or having indulged in excess. He even talks about people who go on buying sprees at the stores. And he says, you get home, you have all of this stuff you've bought, then you go, why did I buy all that, right? says it's a, it, you, you loathe yourself for having spent all this money on things you really don't need or in fact really even want. Okay? To sum up the argument thus far, early Christianity's shift from a renunciation view of property to a detachment view came as a result of at least three ideas about property we find in the writers of that period. First, private property is temporary. Second, Corresponding to that, God will one day require of those with property and, and wealth an account of how they managed it for the benefit of the needy. And third, all of creation was intended by God to be for the benefit of all. No one should claim, in fact, to own the land or air or water, all these sort of natural resources, because these are gifts of God to be in, uh, used by, uh, for everyone's benefit. So combined, right, these features of early Christian teaching reveal a deeper concern with the cultivation of virtue. The willingness to forego superfluous property for the benefit of the poor reveals one's awareness of the fragility of this life. It further reveals one's trust in God to provide for every need. Consequently, such a Christian will cultivate temperance and moderation. These are the things that you can heart that harken back to Aristotle's language, right? not merely in the acquisition of property, <clears throat> but in every sphere of life in which one is prone to excess. Okay, I want to shift gears here now and kind of zoom ahead in time and talk about some more contemporary things, okay? What, um, what would be the implications of this virtue of detachment from property in our modern day? See, exhortation to virtue is all well and good. It would be great if everyone in society would agree, yes, we should all embrace the virtue of temperance, and that will naturally lead us to detachment from wealth, right? But we live in a world that is instead interested in rights language, right? Not virtue language. The ownership of goods is seen as a right upon legal acquisition of goods. Right? That's why we have the examples about the car, right? That would be kind of a difficult uh, issue for most people, right? And about sharing the lawn tools, right? Those kind of examples, they're difficult to do. They're difficult to conceive of how that would be possible because we don't live in that world of a virtue of temperance and a virtue of detachment, right? How that flows into detachment. 
we think in terms of rights. Right? We have a right to something because we've legally or rightfully purchased it. And just take for the, the car example. So if you want to take your car and you, you want to park it in a parking lot and just let it sit there until it rots and rusts and falls apart, right? And just for fun, right? Because you don't want me to borrow it, right? Or anything else. That's okay, right? You have the right to do that in our culture, right? At the Helena Airport, for example, there is a truck that has been parked there for four years, right? The person left it there, went on a flight, never came back, left the truck. They don't know what to do with it. It was in the paper a few uh, months ago. They're like, what do we do with this truck? Right? It's completely coated in dirt. The person has every right to do that. Just walk away. Right? I also read that in, at the Dubai airport, there is at the parking lot in the Dubai airport, there are um, very expensive cars that have been parked in the airport parking lot for several years and just abandoned because people got into financial trouble, drove to the airport, got on a, bought a one-way ticket out of Dubai back to America or wherever, and left their Mercedes, their BMWs, their Maseratis, and they're just sitting in the parking lot of the airport, right? Hey, we, we live in a culture where you have the right to do Why didn't they just tell their neighbor, hey, do you need a free car? Have mine, right? I mean, why didn't they do that, right? Just give me a ride to the airport. That's all I ask, you know? No, they just parked it and just left it, you know? Crazy way we think, but, we, but because we think in terms of rights. Okay, so how ought Christianity to respond in this different environment where property ownership is considered a right? And in looking over some of the documents of the past hundred plus years, say in the Catholic Church at least, uh, it seems Christianity has shifted again in its language about private property. So what began as a religion talking about renunciation, which shifted and for a long time spoke about detachment from wealth, it seems now the language is about in absolute right. To private property. So I want to show you three quotes from documents produced by the Catholic Church since the late 1800s. The first is called Rerum Novarum. It's produced uh, during the era known as the Industrial Revolution. You may be familiar with this text from another class perhaps, but it was produced during a time in which many of the residents in Europe and America as well, right, um, were finding themselves less and less in charge of their own economic futures. They were dependent for money on a factory or a company giving them a job. They simply, the tools that you needed to build your own economic livelihood became less and less available, more and more expensive, and in the hands of fewer and fewer people. So the Pope at the time, Leo XIII, decided to write an encyclical talking about this problem that many people in the world were facing with industrialization that jobs were being, uh, the, the economic livelihood was taken out of the hands of individual people and it was put in the hands of a very small few. And they would give that back in the form of jobs, temporary jobs sometimes, to workers, right? Okay, and you can, you can see a Marxism was another a sort of reaction to this same state of affairs. But Pope Leo had some thoughts about it. I'd like to read those to you here, right? With reason then, the common opinion of mankind has found in the careful study of nature and in the laws of nature the foundations of the division of property. Okay. And the practice of all ages has consecrated the principle of private ownership as being preeminently in conformity with human nature. So isn't that interesting? He's, he lauds private ownership. That's a good thing. Right? And as conducing in the most unmistakable manner to the peace and tranquility of human existence. So the ownership of property is a good thing for the common good. 
but obviously what he's concerned about is that private property is becoming less and less available. It's certainly the type of property you need to build your own sort of economic livelihood. That has been taken away it, uh, and, and, held, and hoarded by the, by the hands of the few. But he goes on here to say the rights here spoken of, that is the right to private property, belonging to each individual man are seen in much stronger light when considered in relation to man's social and domestic obligations. Okay, and it's this last phrase where you see this resonance with the earlier Christian writings, right? That the ownership of private property is a right that you have. It enhances human dignity. It's very good to own property, but you own that property for social goods, for the benefit of your social and domestic obligations. So I have I own a car so that I can support my family in getting my kids to school, right? So they can go get an education, right? Driving them to school or taking them to a sports activity so they can be enriched in their, uh, their lives, right? So I have a piece of property that's there to meet some social obligations. It's not my car to do with it whatever I want. It's there to help my domestic life, right? And enhance that feature of, uh, of my, uh, my social world. Right? And then you just kind of ramp that up to other social obligations in other parts uh, of society. Right? There's another text also very helpful here. John Paul II brings us a little bit closer to our own day. Um, wrote this in the early 1980s. John Paul II was thinking about what Pope Leo had written 90 years ago, right? uh, 90 years earlier. And he sensed that few of the problems of capitalism had abated. Right? Indeed, by 1981, an even higher percentage of the world's population than in 1891 was dependent on companies and factories for jobs. The tools and wealth and opportunity required to make a living for oneself were even more in the hands of a wealthy few. The time seemed ripe again in 1981 to comment once again on the role of private property in the human enterprise. And as you can see in this quote, John Paul II was especially concerned to stress that the needs of human persons trump the right of anyone to claim property as private. So you can see in this quote here, the above principle, that is the primacy of human persons in the production process and over things, diverges radically from the program of collectivism. There's kind of a, uh, a slight against uh, a Marxist uh, mentality in other parts of the world as proclaimed by Marxism and put into practice in various countries. At the same time, it differs from the program of capitalism practiced by liberalism and by the political systems inspired by it. So here you have a very interesting issue here, which is a bit unrelated to our paper, but you can say, you know, where is the Catholic Church on, like, say, Marxism, capitalism? And the answer is it's neither, right? It's kind of like a, or even you could say a both and, right? There's certain aspects of both that are attractive and really neither one is helpful, right? In the latter case, the difference consists in the way the right to ownership or property is understood. Christian tradition has never upheld this right as absolute and untouchable. On the contrary, it has always understood this right within the broader context of the right common to all to use the goods of the whole of creation. The right to private property is subordinated to the right to common use. Right? So if I own a car and somebody else has a greater need for it at the moment, and that their need for it really furthers the common good more than my non-use of the car, the car really belongs to them. It doesn't actually belong to me, is the way I should see that car. Right. 
or any of sort of the lawn tools or those other examples. And notice again here, like in the previous text, the word right shows up several times, right? You see how they've switched language here, not detachment, but it's talking about rights. Last example here, and then we'll close. A third and final, this third and final quote I want to show you comes from a document near to our own day, the Church's Compendium of Social Doctrine from 2005. Um, <coughs> the document interprets for the 21st century the implications of all sort of the earlier teaching. That's why it's a compendium, sort of a collection of many earlier writings in the Catholic Church. Okay? Um, but this document, uh, what this document does is it stresses the Catholic Church's position on the inabsolute right to private property. Okay? Um, if you ever think, uh, well, uh, let me read the text here and just make a comment here. Uh, By means of work and making use of the gift of intelligence, people are able to exercise dominion over the earth and make it a fitting home. This is the origin of individual property. Private property and other forms of private ownership of goods assure a person a highly necessary sphere for the exercise of his personal and family autonomy and ought to be considered as an extension of human freedom. Right? Private property as an extension of freedom, we've seen that theme before. Right? Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute and untouchable. Private property, in fact, regardless of the concrete forms of the regulations and juridical norms relative to it, is in its essence only an instrument for respecting the principle of the universal destination of goods. In the final analysis, therefore, it is not an end but a means. Okay. So what do we have here and in these other quotes? Right? We find this shift in thinking about property as a good thing that helps individuals express their dignity but it's there to be subordinated to the common good. And because private property is to be subordinated to the needs of others who might have a greater claim on it than ourselves at a given time, right? What the Catholic Church teaches is there is an inabsolute right to private property, okay? So the language about private property being something over which we do not have an absolute right to do with as we please returns us to where the paper started. The Christian tradition, like the Greco-Roman traditions in which it emerged, recognizes there is a tipping point in every person's life in regards to private property. You have a natural right to possess what you need. What you are not using, right, you obviously do not need. Obviously, there are some goods that you are not using now, right, but you can imagine you'll be using them in just a, a little bit, right, in the near future. But for the Christian tradition, we cross the line into thievery the moment we claim too many things are private and we avoid sharing them with others because we have too many perceived future needs. This mentality reveals a deficit in our cultivation of the virtue of temperance and reveals our lack of trust in God to provide for our future needs. And that's why Jesus' earliest followers understood renunciation of all property as really the best way. But since that's not feasible for most people, detachment came in as an alternative. But because we live in a day where detachment language and virtue language does not hold the greatest currency, but rights language does, the Christian church in our own day speaks instead about rights and talks about property as being an inabsolute right. But since we are here at a lecture in honor of Augustine, I close with a quotation from him 
in which he considers when a wealthy person becomes a thief. This is in his exposition of Psalm 147. He says, Scripture exhorts us to engage in works of mercy and to grow increasingly generous in giving away whatever we have to spare. If we hold on to only what we need, we shall find there are many superfluous things in our possession. Although if we seek worthless trifles, we shall never have enough. So seek only what you need, and you will see how few things that is. The superfluity of the rich is necessary to the poor. If you hold on to superfluous items, then you are keeping what belongs to someone else. Okay, thank you very much. And it looks like we have 10 to 15 minutes maybe for questions. So I'm happy to entertain some questions if you have them. Yes? Would you say the notion of private property in the Catholic Church uh, is derived from, say, the natural law that Aquinas talked about? Yeah, so that would just... Um, I think you see that here in, in this, uh, yeah. So he said, with reason then, right, the common opinion of mankind, right? So it roots it back in this sort of long tradition, what people just naturally sense, right? I worked hard, I got a paycheck, I took that paycheck to the store, and I bought myself object X or Y or Z. That's now my object, right? It's just natural for people to recognize private property is somehow the result of their labor, <coughs> right? And that would be, yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Can comment a little bit on how um, property is related to communal-based cultures of the Greco-Roman era, uh, where there's a limited society at present, but it's also very communal, to the individualistic culture that we have today, um, and maybe how that plays out in like, the expression of words language. Mm -hmm. um, as well as other language. I think those things seem like they're at play as well. So, um, so maybe I should just ask for a little clarification. So when you, um, so you're assuming that in the Greco-Roman times it was more of a communal-based society as far as the sharing of, of goods. Yeah, I mean it was also a, it was a limited good society. Yes. And what wealth was, uh, mm -hmm. from my understanding, is uh, wealth was something over the community around you. And so in a lot of ways, it was taken from your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Wealth today, we don't have that same connotation of actually taking from our neighbor because our neighbor is halfway around the world. Right. Um, but we are, well, yeah, I mean, it's not a zero-sum game in that sure. there's a certain amount of production of goods that, and uh, productive capacity can increase, right? Mm -hmm. but, um, but there is a sense, right, where we don't, just because the person lives halfway across the world, we're still dependent on them to produce goods for us because we want them at a certain price, right, at a cheaper price. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, I don't know how if that what that does as far as drawing connections back to the Greco-Roman world. But you have an incredible scarcity of resources, and you have an incredible scarcity of the means to acquire resources. So you have, I mean, the stratification of society. Um, there's some studies that have been done on this in the last few years, based on some archaeological excavations in Corinth and at a couple cities in Asia Minor looking back at the Roman uh, uh, strata of the, those excavations, uh, that part of the society, uh, that era of this, those societies. It appears uh, from some of the reports that I've read of those excavations that about 92% of the population was in 
was in uh, deep poverty. And only about 8% had any sort of means to weather a financial storm. Uh, and, you're, and just the top 1%, uh, less than that even, had such an incredible amount of wealth that the financial storms really didn't necessarily affect them at all. But 92% of the population just barely scraping by. Um, so you can, uh, so the, uh, the, the, the obligation for families to live, to, you know, mul large, multiple generations of a family to live together, to support one another um, is, was critical. Uh, Basil of Caesarea in 372, there was a, um, an earthquake in 368 in Cappadocia and it led to a famine. A um, lot, lot of productive land kind of went out of use. There was a, a famine and um, people were, uh, he said, literally throwing their aged relatives out onto the road to die, right? And he thought that was despicable and he built, he tried to build the center, like what we maybe call a hospice center, but a place of what he called a hospital, but for them to come in and sort of die with a certain amount of dignity, die in a room, not out on the roadside, uh, die with maybe some shade over their head, not just you know sitting under the porticos maybe of a building. Um, so there was the sense when things got really tight, families got rid of the children and got rid of the aged. And was food was reserved just for the productive members of the, the economically productive members of the household. And Basil tried to create a system of, if you will, a social safety net, at least during those years, to provide for that, that group that had been abandoned. So I don't know just how well that sort of common sharing of goods worked when things were really bad. It was bad all the time for about 92% of the population. But um, during the famines, which typically came after earthquakes when people had abandoned pro fields and things, that it was um, particularly um, devastating. So I don't, I don't know that we have enough evidence, perhaps, to say just how well they, they, that work, they work together. But do you have some other thoughts about it, or have you done some other uh, no, I mean, I was reading on it? No, I've taken some classes, and uh, yeah. a lot of uh, the homily, or not the homilies, the parables that they look at with mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, the professor was talking about living in good society and how Jesus constantly restores people right. that are on the margins of that living good society back into uh, yeah. the society itself. Um, yeah. yeah, he seems to... Um, call out the dignity of those individuals. In there. And, and Basil seems to be responding to that, I think, when his disconstruction. But you know, that's sort of like a isolated uh, incident in the, in the middle of the fourth century. It does become a lot more common. Churches after that um, begin to create separate rooms in each of their, in, in, the, in the monasteries and also in churches. The rooms uh, take on the name Diakonia, and it's a place to serve, uh, provide food and other goods to help the poor. Um, who, and, and you knew if you were a person experiencing dire financial needs, you could go to the, the monastery door to the church and knock, whether you're a Christian or not, and ask to see the person in charge of the diaconia, and you would be provided some relief for the day or, or for the month or whatever it is that your needs were. John Chrysostom actually developed a sort of an investigative force that would go around and check on your situation to make sure you weren't lying, right? So he had like people who would go and see do you really have a dire financial need or not? If you really did, you actually went on a, a, a dole, if you will, from the church for 12 months. And they kept these lists of individuals. But after, you had been, after your situation had been investigated to see if it was truly desperate or if you really could work uh, and pay your own way, um, you would go on a 12-month dole. It's a separate issue. Yeah, other thoughts or questions people had? Yes. 
Yeah, question about uh, how an absolute right works. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, uh, I guess the logic can go something like this. You know, I have the right to own what I need. Right. But it gets awfully complicated when you put that in the context of social and domestic obligations. Because if I start noticing what others don't seem to have, how stable is this notion of I have the right to own what I need? And doesn't at some point the notion of an absolute right begin to collapse under <coughs> that kind of complexity? Maybe. I guess it depends on your definition of what you need, right? So with six people in my family, I need a vehicle that can transport six people. That takes away about four-fifths of all classes of vehicles available for sale in the United States. It costs more money to buy, say, a minivan or a Suburban or something. So I mean, I'm having to people say, oh, why didn't you, you spent all that money on that vehicle. Why didn't you give some of it to the, the poor or something, right? Say, but if I don't buy that very vehicle, right, I'm, I'm actually not providing for the immediate needs of my uh, social group, the immediate social group, it's my family. I mean, that's just a kind of a silly example, but there, but there is a point when I have to say, well, what other things do I really need, or what are, does that make sense? I think that's where I would go with it, but you, do you think it would go a different way? No, I don't have a, I, mean, I don't have a worked out feel on this. It just strikes me that the judgment about what it is that I, I, I truly so like my, for example, I think my, one of my neighbors modeled this well for me. Um, my lawnmower, go back to the lawnmower example, my lawnmower died in the middle of cutting my lawn one day, right? Just ceased to work, couldn't get a thing started, whatever. And my neighbor heard that I was having trouble, came over and said, why don't you just, I have an extra lawnmower. <laughs> and they, believe it or not, they had an extra one. And they said, just have it, right? Use it for as long as you need it till you get yourself another one. And if you never get yourself another one, I don't care. Just have my extra one. That's a long, uh, an elderly Christian couple, long-standing sort of commitment to things like this. So they, I think that very much grew out of their. But they looked around and said, "There's somebody who has a greater need for this object than we do, right? For them, it was a backup to their other mower." I thought that was they. They saw that although it was their private property, there was a social need that their private ownership was subordinated to. And the social need was their neighbor that had a greater need for it than they did Wouldn't at that very moment. Wouldn't it be better if they had sold that lawnmower? I mean, you can afford a lawnmower. Sold it and gave it to people who are that 92%, the equivalent of that 92% around the world. Yeah. I mean, this is very, it's very vexing because you, first of all, what is a need and what is a want is culturally determined and it's, and it's a very ambiguous concept. But even more important than that, um, we're talking about not errors of commission, you know, things that we do, but it's things that we fail to do. Mm -hmm. And it isn't just we fail to do, you, you've said this is a Christian act, and I believe it is a Christian act. I think it was a gift and it was a kindness. Mm -hmm. But of all the kindnesses they could have done, right. which kindness would be appropriate? Mm -hmm. And to even make it more complicated, is it sinful? Is this a, is it a sinful act? to not care for those people when they clearly have resources above what is absolutely you know, just, you know. Yeah. 
I think that's a I have no answers to any of those. No, that, but that's exactly, I think, what this sort of language in these texts is prompting us to ask, right? Because it does get pretty personal because there's a lot of things in our possession, right? Yes. Our dorm rooms, our apartments, our homes, whatever. We have lots of things in there that we use very occasionally. And could it be more productively used by others, right? Well, that's why I think it was um, one of the texts I was looking at or mentioning earlier um, that when you engage in this sort of introspection, you begin to realize that you actually need a lot less than you think you do and than what you currently have. Yes, sir. Art. I sort of feel the, the imbalance, the mm -hmm. a lack of a, an appreciation of what is common and the communal destination uh, of all that God has created. We don't own it, anything. We use it, we administer it. But when we don't feel that we're a community, and I don't see your need because you're a thousand miles away, mm -hmm. and I work on the system of rights, I have a right, an obligation as well, but it stems from my rights. Uh, my experience in Peru is that the common property, which annually the community divides up according to the needs, a woman becomes a, a widow and she needs more property to be able to raise her children. The, how, because there's a community there, nobody's going to die of hunger unless everybody dies of hunger. Like when right. For, I mean, this is another thing that struck me. Uh, like when I lived and worked in Belgium at the Catholic University of Leuven, all this—it's a state university. Everything with all the salaries, everything is kind of set by the state. But you get a different amount of money depending upon the size of your family, right? So I had one kid at the time we moved to Belgium had a second kid while we were there right my income went up simply because I got another child people who were doing the exact same job as me who might have been single or married but had no kids got less money right we're doing the same job so when I moved to Carroll College right I said hey wouldn't that be interesting if we paid people on the basis of need not on the basis of just doing a job well you might I might as well have just you know I was going to start a riot you know how dare you think about not paying me what, you know, the same rate that person doing the same job is also getting paid, right? I said, but maybe somebody has a greater need for more of those resources than you do, right? Well, that's just, we don't think that way. It's a completely different mentality. But I think, and so we just are, there's a certain conditioning perhaps in the culture, perhaps there in Peru that just simply has not been the case here, or certainly not in, we in much of Western it's society. Growing. Huh? It's really, it's yeah. invading concept of individualism yeah I mean we do get close to it like car sharing services mm -hmm. right um, uh, I've also seen art sharing services where you can like rent art to put on the walls in your home right for say five months I know that's an exorbitant uh, sort of expense right but I mean but you could people begin to share objects and you don't spend all that you need I mean, all that you would to buy each piece of art or each car, right? You share the expense by sharing the vehicle and you have an agreement by which you can rent the car for by the hour or whatnot. But yes. We have time maybe for one or two more questions, but Father Alan, yes. So I, I, I take, trying to take a bit of a lesson from the mere fact that history has changed in the way it perceives the use of wealth. Mm -hmm. um, it, it almost appears as though the issue isn't 
the, the having or the having or the not having, so much of it is the relationship of human beings one to another. And that there will always be some who have more and always be some who have less. And it, it almost feels futile to come up with general principles. Because I'm not going to mm -hmm. agree with myself when I say that, but because mm -hmm. uh, we have to have some kind of principle to work on it. But this um, in absolute right, instead of being a principle by which we act, it ends up seeming to be a boundary against which we should not, um, a boundary we should not cross. Is that? So just because they use the language of right, that that's what suggests no, that in, to you? In the sense that since we're always going to struggle with it, right. we end up setting limits rather than proposing oh, right. um, specific actions. Uh, we, we talk about ideals rather than being able to say exactly how that's going to work out. And so the two pennies of the, of the widow versus the, the many gifts of the rich uh, ends up being a way of trying to work one's work out one's own salvation, one's own sense of what the worth of things really ought to be. Um, but it, it, you don't come up with things that are for all ages always the same because every culture and age has to deal with it right. in its own way. But this is why I mean I find attractive the virtue of I mean this language of detachment from wealth because it cultivates this it aims at cultivating this virtue right of temperance right and, and, and liberality and moderation like Aristotle talks about I think that seems a bit more transcendent than this in absolute right language but that's all that really works in our culture I mean, it's, so I can see they're responding to the culture maybe unless I misunderstand the question too but I, I think I get get what you're, what you're going at. But yeah, there's this, um, it's like a lamentable sort of uh, response. But it's what we have to do. Okay, but thank you very much for coming. I'm happy to entertain. If you have other comments, I'll try to make